Warning, the content of the show is left-leaning and offers radical ideas, plus challenging the status quo. Accordingly, we ask you to remain calm and have an open mind. If not, there are other podcast shows that can speak to your conformity. Shut up and sit down. Thank you for listening to this episode of Firebrand. I am your host, AJ. Um, today's episode, we're going to be talking about the elections. Um, uh, in this um, presidential election, uh, we're seeing the circus of on the Republican side who is pretty much a bunch of kindergartens saying, you know, like, this person saying that, he's a liar, he pulled my hair Oh my God, he's poking me. That's what we're getting. We're getting a whole bunch of children who are just spatting all over the place and everything. And the other unique thing with um, this Republican primary is, unfortunately, and some somewhat fortunately, I guess depending on how you look at it, is the diversity of candidates we've had. We have... People who are on the legislative side of government. We have people who are on the executive side of government. We have Trump in the private sector. Ben Carson, who's in the healthcare profession. Um, Carla Fiorina, who uh, you know, who bowed out. If you're listening to this podcast, um, who's also in the private sector. So, I mean, there was a whole array of people that we've had. In everything, and that's what made it more interesting for the Republican side because of that diversity, but also that backlash of these um, childish conduct that we are seeing. And on the Democratic side, you know, Martin O'Malley bowed out, but he too was a governor and a mayor in the state of Maryland. Um, Bernie Sanders, you know, senator. From uh, Vermont, uh, he was a mayor of Burlington in Vermont. He was in the U.S. House representing Vermont and everything. So he's been more on the legislative, and he was also on the, I guess, executive side of as a mayor of um, Burlington. And then you have um, Hillary Clinton, who has essentially been in government in one capacity or another, whether it's um, uh, being the first lady. Secretary of State. Um, she was a senator. I mean, she was on the legislative side, so she has like that experience, I guess. She also has the experience of being an attorney, you know, in private practice and everything, and has worked in the private sector um, as that um, attorney or what have you. So, I mean, she's unique in on herself and everything. But again this episode is more about the elections why do we have elections why do we have this process that people feel this is a democratic process well in some ways it is i mean this is a few times for those of us who live in the united states that we get to decide who we would like to see as president as mayor as senator at the state and federal level to see wh- whoever we want. I mean, we have that choice. 
And, you know, at the very, very, very surface level, um, that's the only kind of quote-unquote democracy that we have. But it's that underlining concept of the elections that the public choose not to listen to or are really ill-informed about what the elections is about. So here are some things. First and foremost, we do not have any broad universal law when it comes to our elections. Um, All the elections are done state by state. Each state has their own code within the um, area of election law and everything. So elections regarding laws are different in Maine, South Carolina, Illinois, Texas, Alaska, Hawaii, even in the territories and Washington, D.C., So that's like problem number one. We don't have any universal election law that determines how voting is conducted. We don't have laws that really speak to what can or cannot happen. And this draws a lot of problematic problematic, um, issues. Excuse me. Focusing on Illinois, um, only because I only live in Illinois and everything. Uh, Illinois has one of the toughest states when it comes to elections laws. It's it's usually Illinois, Texas, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, Florida, uh, Virginia, Oklahoma, California, or at least eight states that has horrendous election laws. So, again, focusing on Illinois. In Illinois, there's very specific code when it comes to what people can or cannot do. And, again, this goes back to what I was mentioning earlier when it comes to, you know, people not understanding the elections. You know, we don't just have elections where we have these things, we have these places called county clerks who are elected they manage and coordinate um, elections with various counties within a state and then each state has their own state election board or secretary of state or whoever the um, government entity that would oversee the elections and everything and in Illinois we have state board of elections So, people, it's not just someone or an entity just collects names, and then those names get to be on a ballot, and then they get printed off. There's another layer that people don't know about. So, in the state of Illinois, there is an actual board. And this board is made up of uh, eight people. And these eight people are appointed by the governor. Um, Four of them 
who four of these members are residents of Cook County. Another four are residents of the state outside of Cook County. So it could be someone from Madison County, Coles County, Sagamon County, Adams County, Whiteside County, Winnebago County, Jersey County, Schotler County, any of those counties. You know, there's got to be four of them that's appointed by the governor. And with those eight, four of them are usually um, the Republican, four of them Republican, four of them Democrat. Um, and they have alternating terms. Within that board, you usually have a chair that is usually um, elected by the board for a two-year term, and it's alternated by parties. So this year it's um, a Republican who has this, or excuse me, this year this year is a, a Democrat. Excuse me, last year last board was a Republican. And here's the other thing. <laughs> so the chair of the State Board of Elections in Illinois gets a salary of $58,000. The board also elects a vice chair whom that person gets 48000 The rest of the members get... 37,000, let's call it 78, or excuse me, $38,000 as the rest of members, and they all get other expenses. I'm sure there's like travel expenses that they get paid, a stipend for that, they get um, lodging, other expenses they are, they also get compensated for that. And these are our four-year terms that are staggered. And again, the governor gets to appoint these members and then um, usually the Senate approves all these members. So that's just Illinois. You have people getting paid by taxpayer dollars. That's little over $80,000 of taxpayer money that decides on how elections are being conducted and who gets to be on the ballot and who doesn't. By eight people, eight people in the state of Illinois versus millions of people that live in the state of Illinois. Eight people get to decide who gets to be on the ballot and how our elections ought to be conducted as well. I mean this is preposterous. I mean these are the this is the very things that my you know, my friends and myself talk about all the time of how we have these horrendous laws. Each year in the state of Illinois they come out with a candidate's guide and, and it's for that appropriate election year. So in this year, this is a presidential year, they get printed off, it's public information. You can go Google um, Illinois Candidate Guide 2016. You know, it lists every single race that is up this year. So it will be President, uh, U.S. Senator, House, 
certain senatorial races in the state, um, U.S. House races, and a few other um, local races as well. And each one of those positions will tell you what the requirements are for someone to run in that specific race. Again, this is a board of eight that decides on these requirements. And then and the State Board of Elections also has attorneys that works on these laws and works with the board and so forth and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's eight people deciding all this information. So the state of Illinois, if you want to run for president as either a third-party candidate or an independent candidate, you need to have 25,000 signatures. 25,000 signatures. Now let that sink in for a second. I mean, that is a huge number. Now, mind you, in the state of Illinois, there is no real mechanism to kick someone off the ballot. The other democratic process in the state of Illinois is this thing called an objection period, and it's usually a week. So let's say there are, um, well, let's just say there's five people running who want to be the presidential candidate on the Illinois ballot. You have the Democratic candidate, Republican candidate, and let's say you have, oh, I don't know, in Illinois, a Libertarian candidate, Green candidate, Socialist candidate, okay? And let's just say for all intents and purposes that the Libertarian candidate only gets 10 signatures out of 25,000. Again, the, the State Board of Elections doesn't automatically, oh, they have 10, you're off the ballot. Someone has to actually object to that. And they can go through the courts and explain why um, they have 10, or they can just bow out. Um, that's the process. So, again, this is um, the things that we have and everything. And in, in, in every year, you know, when I've worked with um, third-party candidates, there has been some complications with that, especially when you meet the requirements. Uh, you get Republicans and Democrats who really want to take someone off the ballot and everything. So, and, and, but keep in mind, when, you, when I say 25, and given this information about an objection period, so 25,000 really is the minimum. You need to double, if not triple, that number so that if your petition does get challenged by, say, a Republican or Democrat, and each signature line gets objected, you still have a little bit of wiggle room to still meet the 25,000 signature requirement. So this is why it's a problem. For anyone who wants to run, that's not a Republican or a Democrat. So 25,000 really ends up to be 45,000 signatures. Sometimes you may have to get to 55,000. 
Now how democratic is that? And mind you, there's this thing called established party status where in order to get that in Illinois, you have to have your gubernatorial candidate in that gubernatorial election year to get 5% or better to get statewide ballot access. Um, The Green Party did this in 2006 when Rich Whitney ran for governor. He got 10% of um, the general election vote. So he's well above the 5%. So from 2006 to about the 2010 um, campaign, uh, that's how long they had the established party status because after 2010, um, the Green Party didn't get the 5%. and 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 that leads to another problem um, because when you in the state of Illinois, there is this rule that you have to have a full slate for anyone, new parties, established parties. You need that full slate during that gubernatorial year. So what does that mean? A gubernatorial, a full slate of candidates means you have to have um, a U.S. Senate candidate, gubernatorial candidate a lieutenant gubernatorial candidate, attorney general, state's attorney general, comptroller, treasurer, and secretary of state. So you need seven candidates to be on this slate. And for years, a few years, a decade, if not better, um, the Libertarian Party has always filed... Um, a complaint to the state Supreme Court that says how it's unconstitutional. The Illinois Green Party has you know, fought alongside the Le- Illinois Libertarian Party as well as the Illinois Constitutionalist Party. And as of February 12th, at the U.S. District Court, um, Judge Andrea Wood issued a one-page order granting the Illinois Libertarian Party's motion for summary judgment that the Illinois full slate law is unconstitutional. The full slate law, as I mentioned, was, you know, was passed in 1931. And it was done in 1931 because of, wait for it, wait for it, of a Communist Party candidate named Claude Lightfoot. He was a, a leader in the, the black community. In Chicago, he ran as a um, state's rep in 1932 and received 33,000 votes. Now, it wasn't enough to win, but it showed that 33,000 voters in the state of Illinois wanted someone different. And Lightfoot was very popular back in the 30s in the state of Illinois. So when this passed, it really put a um, damp on, damper on their party candidates and everything. So now having this issue, this one-page issue order by Judge Wood, 
saying that new parties are not required to run a full slate of candidates. It's huge in Illinois. So instead of finding seven people, especially the same seven people, to run for office, now you can just want run one person. Because in Illinois, you don't have a, a you don't have to have a a gubernatorial or a lieutenant gubernatorial candidate run on the same ticket. It's just one person. This is huge. So, in the years to come. You know, we can probably see a little bit more diverse candidates. This will actually frees up a lot of third parties when it comes to their electoral action campaigns. So, in the coming months in Illinois, I would look for, for the next gubernatorial race, a libertarian candidate, a green candidate, maybe a socialist candidate, maybe a constitutionalist candidate. Who knows? Um, hopefully we can see more people running um, this time around. So, I mean, there's all that. And I, and, I, and I know I gave a lot of nerdy and geeky information about, you know, all these rules and laws and everything. But there's a couple of things I want to um, parcel out as well. Um, one is... Voter ID. Voter ID is something that a lot of Republicans talk about because they want to keep the integrity of the vote. They want to make sure that the person voting in the ballot box is says who they are and not someone who is deceased, not someone who is someone else and who is an ex-felon and they're using their relative's name who hasn't voted. Or what have you. I mean, they want to keep, like I said, that in the integrity of the election, as they will say. And every Republican wants voter ID. They, they did in Wisconsin since Walker got into office. Um, South Carolina has voter ID laws. Um, almost every, I would say about 20% or better of the states have voter ID of some sort. And the reason why it's a problem is because not a lot of people have the proper ID. Because if you look at voter ID and then you look at the percentages of voters who may have IDs, now you're talking something that's a little, little bit more dealing with class and race. A lot of oppressed communities, especially blacks and Latinos, don't have the proper IDs for one reason or another. Some people can't even afford to go to like the DMV and pay certain fees to get the IDs. Some people just don't want to lay, wait in line at the DMV just to get a document that says, you know, this is Jane Doe. John Doe from this place. So voter ID comes down to a race and class issue. Uh, I'm going to be playing for you um, a CBS segment by way of last week, tonight, with John Oliver. Um, 
Here's that segment. 68-year-old Doris Clark was turned down three times applying for her Pennsylvania voter ID card. And every time, she says, the state wanted another document, original birth certificate, original social security card. Then she needed her husband's death certificate when a clerk demanded proof of her married name. You feel like, why am I going through all these things? And that's the problem. You have someone who is wanting to vote, but they're asked a litany of things. Social security card, driver's license, birth certificate, um, death certificate, whatever document people want, the government wants, is to make sure they know who you are. And that's sad. If you're voting, if you're in the United States and the only thing you just really need to show is just your ID, that should be it. I mean, honestly, I think elections ought to be free and, you know, you should just go and vote and everything. But that, that's that's for another episode. And if you listen to um, Out Front with um, Nick Sarantos and I, we'll probably have that conversation as well. But that is... A very horrendous way. It's very undemocratic for someone like that woman to show who she is and how she should vote and everything. That is just horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. So I'm not in favor of voter... ID whatsoever. The other thing, and this is more at the the national level. Um, by now, if you're listening to this episode, we're probably through the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary, and we're well into going to the primaries in South Carolina, the caucuses in Nevada, and a lot of other states. So. There's this thing that a lot of people are talking about called superdelegates. This is not this is kind of a new thing and by kind of new, I would say the last decade or so that the I this 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 concept of superdelegates coming to more in front of the media and a lot of people are talking about this. I'm going to be playing a clip for you from um, CNN. This is um, John Trapper, who is interviewing the Democratic National Committee Chair, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and talking about what what superdelegates are and why they exist. Sanders in New Hampshire by 22 percentage points, the biggest victory in a contested Democratic primary there since John F. Kennedy. But it looks as though Clinton and Sanders are leaving the Granite State with the same number of delegates in their pockets because Clinton has the support of New Hampshire's superdelegates, these party insiders. What do you tell voters who are new to the process who says, this makes them feel like it's all rigged? Well, let me just make sure that I can clarify exactly what was available during the primaries in Iowa and in New Hampshire. The unpledged delegates are a separate category. 
The only thing available on the ballot in a primary and a caucus is the pledged delegates, those that are tied to the candidate that they are pledged to support, and they receive a proportional number of delegates going into, the, uh, going into our convention. Unpledged delegates exist really to make sure that party leaders and elected officials don't have to be in a position where they are running against grassroots activists. We are, as a Democratic Party, really highlight and emphasize inclusiveness and diversity at our convention, and so we want to give every opportunity to grassroots activists and diverse, committed Democrats to be able to participate, attend, and be a delegate at the convention. And so we separate out those, those unpledged delegates to make sure that there isn't competition between them. I'm not sure that that, that, that answer would satisfy uh, an anxious uh, young uh, voter, but let, let's move on. Here's a So, one more time. It is of the DNC's opinion, if not thought process, that there are two separate categories. There's delegates and superdelegates. The delegates, in concept, are people who are voting for the candidate they would like to see, in this case, the Democratic Party. And these are the grassroots activists. These are the um, uh, progressives and people who champion populism, etc., etc. They vote, and they say, we want person X or person Y. And the other category, we have superdelegates who don't vote the same as um, delegates because they don't want to compete with people who are grassroots activists, who champion populism, who champion progressivism, so forth and so forth. So these are elected officials, um, your governors, your state reps, state senators, your U.S. senators, your U.S. House reps. All those people kind of vote differently from everyone else. It's the same idea of, you know, we have this in the United States in the elections, um, the electoral college and the popular vote. And this is this argument. This is the thing that happened in 2000, where Al Gore won the popular vote, but not really won like the electoral college votes and certain other votes that went to George W. Bush. So this is the same situation we're kind of seeing, and I'm sure it's going to be more unfolding on the Democratic primary side is that you have these popular votes for Sanders, but you have all these superdelegates that are getting behind Hillary Clinton. And if you look at it, I mean, she does have these endorsements from various U.S. senators, U.S. House reps, governors, and a few other people, whereas Sanders is actually getting votes from progressive elected officials and from the people. I mean, this is where it gets to be a little bit more divided. And this is the problem that we have in elections and everything. I can go on for another half hour or more regarding the elections, but I really don't want to get into the whole nuance and bore you to death with more information. But I, just, I would like to end with this. I am of the opinion that elections are important. 
Um, it is the very basis of why we have come together and we actually gotten people elected and everything. But over time, as this idea of elections has evolved, and it can, we can look back to other civilizations that have voted or worked together, even though I am of the opinion that we need the elections, that we need the ballot box in order to get certain people elected into office because that's the current system that we have. I am also of the opinion that you don't need the ballot box to get change done. Change doesn't happen between presidential year presidential years or gubernatorial years. It just doesn't happen. Or at the midterms. It don't work like that. Do I like Sanders? I do. One of the people I've admired over the years and supported on some of the issues, not all the issues, but some things I have supported his stances on. But you, you, we're not going to elect Sanders and everything's going to be done. So you, and you're mistaken if that's going to be happening anytime soon. But I do feel that real change does happen when you have these processes like what Occupy was doing called a General Assemblies. When you have workers in the workplace that actually have worker councils, you have these things where students actually come together as a union to make changes in the schoolhouse. When you get people together to formulate ideas and then try to put them into policy and then you get a consensus to enact those policies is when you start going to have real change. So it doesn't happen in the ballot box. It happens in the public commons, in the schoolhouse, in your own home, in the community. That's where change happens. Change does not happen by taking a piece of paper and you pull a lever, you check someone off, you poke a chad. It don't work like that at all. So even though the ballot box is important to get the right kind of progressive ideas into government bodies, it also needs to happen outside of government to make change from the outside because you can't just rely on those in the inside and the hollow halls of state and federal capital buildings. So with that being said, I mean, thank you for subscribing to um, Firebrand and hopefully you're listening to more episodes of Firebrand. I'm your host, AJ, and thank you for listening to us on this podcast network. And if you have any questions, um, check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash Firebrand. And um, hopefully we'll see you and just and remember, you are the one that can make the change. Thank you, everybody. See you guys soon.